It is a joy to stand before you and do my best to explain these verses that we go through week by week. You can turn in your Bible to Second Peter chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 10 through 13 today, but before we do, I just want to kind of give a recap for a flow. This is in your notes, so you can follow along, but just as we think about what Peter has said, it's good, especially when we get into some of the kind of technical details of verses like we're going to today, it's good to kind of step back and say, okay, there's there's detail here that's important, it's good, but what's the overall kind of theme of what's being said here? And so chapter 1, you can see some big points. Through grace in Christ, God has has made and fulfills great and precious promises to his people. This grace of God will result in godly qualities. And the truth about Christ is real, not man-made myths, but it's real because it comes from God himself, not men. Second, Second chapter, false teachers. They will intentionally lead others away from the truth, but we know that they will be judged accordingly by God because they do not genuinely be, belong to God. Peter says, watch out, be careful, stay away from them and their teachings. Beware. Chapter 3, he says, scoffers will come, but Christians continue to endure, knowing that the day of the Lord is coming. God has been patient with his creation, but he will quickly and surely return in judgment Christians, though, need not fear because God rescues the righteous. So one of my goals last week was to was to try and explain a little bit better how God's will is revealed in Scripture. And in, in doing so, I may have been a little unclear about some of the aspects of verse 9. So look at verse 9 again with me. As, as Peter writes his letter, it's clear that his primary audience is believers who have like faith. So back to chapter 1, verse 1. But chapter 2 explains... Even though that that's the primary audience here, chapter 2 explains that false teachers are there in the church. They exist among them, among the genuinely saved. And as surely as we read this letter today, the same is true of churches now. There are those who are genuinely saved and there are those who are not. And so when Peter says that God is patient toward you, we understand that the patience of God extends to all creation, both those who are believers and those who do not believe. So that's really good news. That's fantastic news because were it not for this patience of God, none of us would be saved. God has endured in patience for thousands of years now and even beyond. In his divine patience, God's mercy and love are on full display. And we need to see that. And we need to believe that. Peter explains that God is patient because he would rather that no one perish in their sin, but that all would come to repentance. Uh, Ezekiel, I think 17, 33, they say the same kind of thing. They say God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, but would rather they repent. Now, the truth is we know that not all people repent and believe the gospel. There are many who do not travel through the narrow gate. Uh, Jesus describes himself really that way in Matthew chapter 7. He says, the gate is wide and the gate is easy or the way is easy that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter by it. The few are the ones who enter by the gate by Jesus. He is the way, the truth and life. And so I just want to be clear. The offer of the gospel goes out to all and all who respond by faith will be saved. Whosoever believes will be saved. God has not given up. 
He's still working. He is still being patient with his people and his creation. And this simply displays his kindness and mercy that's still being out, poured out in the world today. And so for that, we are grateful. And so this is the desire of a patient God. First Timothy 2.4 tells us this. He, he's a patient God. He would rather that all believe and, be, and not perish. And yet he is a perfect judge who judges righteously. As a perfect judge, he executes that judgment at just the right time in every person's life. So last week, a major thrust of of the sermon was, hey, it seems like a lot of time has passed. This was the, the accusation of the scoffers, right? Hey, nothing has changed since the beginning of the world, so that must mean that nothing will change. And so Peter's arguing this. He's saying, no, it seems like a lot of time to you and to me. But God experiences time very differently than we do. To God, it may be a thousand years on our calendar, but to God, it's just like a day. It's like nothing. Now, I think this is important going into verses 10 through 13 because Peter makes it really clear in these verses that the day of the Lord is coming quickly and with it comes the dissolution of the physical world around us. So not only that, but in light of his imminent return, it matters how you live now. So let's read verses 10 through 13 of chapter 3 and then pray. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Pray with me. Lord, there's a lot here. And we want to be faithful stewards of your word, uh, faithful um, students of your word. And so as we we talk about word meaning and and Greek and uh, some technical things... uh, Keep, keep our minds focused on what Peter's main point is, uh, that you're coming again. And as we work through these things, give us grace with ourselves, with one another, to help uh, as we learn together. In your name we pray. Amen. So look at verse 10. Uh, remember what the scoffers are saying. I mentioned it already. They're saying, hey, where's the promise of his coming? Nothing's changed since the beginning of creation. Nothing's going to change. Where is, where is he? If, he's, if Christ is supposed to return, where is he? I, may, maybe someone has come to you with that argument. This has been prophesied so many years ago, and we do think that probably a lot of these New Testament authors believed it would happen in their lifetime. If that's the case, well, why hasn't he returned? Is he going to return? And so Peter explains further what that day is going to look like. And he says the day is rapidly approaching and it will happen quicker than anyone expects. And he equates it to like a thief. Now remember similes. We talked a lot about that last week. Jesus isn't a thief. Okay. He's not doing anything wrong here, but it says that it's like a thief, his second coming. You can imagine, I I don't know. Some of you may have had things taken from you. Maybe your house has been broken into. Uh, If you've watched as much Matlock as I have, you know that bad guys do bad stuff at night because it's dark, right? This is why this 
teenagers, parents, this is why a lot of times, uh, a lot of times your parents will tell you nothing good happens after sunset or after 11 or 12 or whatever. And for the most part, that's, that's pretty true. Listen to them. That's true. But when, when you think about, um, being burgled, that's a fun word. Uh, if you think about being burgled, um, you fall asleep at night, everything's fine. You wake up the next day and there's been an intrusion. You've had things taken from you. Now you feel violated. You, you know, it all. Now here's, here's what Peter's getting at. He's saying, if you knew you were going to be, someone was going to steal from you, <laughs> you would have been prepared, right? You would have bought a security system. You would have gotten a big dog. You would have stayed up with your gun. Whatever you wanted to have done, you wouldn't have been stolen from because you would have been prepared. And, and Peter is saying, it's going to happen because you're not prepared, because you're not expecting it. You're not ready for it. The intrusion came when you least expected it. So be prepared. You don't know when Christ will return is what he's getting at. So get ready now. Don't wait. Because it's going to happen at a time when you don't know, when you're not prepared. Then, Peter goes on, he says, The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, there's a lot of, of stuff here. And, it, and it, it means a lot to us because it's talking about a time in the future that we don't have personal experience with. And so we're interested in it. What does he mean? What is this, what is it going to mean for us and for my loved ones who don't yet know Christ or, or those sorts of questions? It's important, but I do want to, before we kind of get into the meat of it, I want to pause and check out the word heavens. Peter uses this word several times in his writings, specifically in this chapter in verse five. You can look at that in verse seven and he uses them, uh, this word in response to the statement for ever since our fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So he's using the term heavens in that context. It's a fairly common word used in the New Testament, used by Peter himself. Um, we had a, a, an elders meeting Thursday night and we, we kind of helped me understand some things more about this word. If, if you look in the King James Version and then if you look in that with some of the Greek meanings of the words, you ca- we kind of get to the sense of how it was translated. So the, the Greek word here is uranos and for heaven, and it, it, it can mean different things based on the context. Now, the King James helps out a little bit because when it's translated heaven, singular, at least in Peter's writings, it's, it's talking about or referring to the dwelling place of God this eternal abode of God that existed before creation. It's where God dwells. It's eternal. But in the King James, in Peter's writings at least, when it's translated heavens, plural, he's referring to the created heavens, the created um, atmosphere, the sky, the stars, the moon, heaven in that sense. So in, in other New Testament writings, it's used a little bit more interchangeably. But in Peter's writings, it's, it's really, it's almost exactly that each time. And I, I think I missed this difference back a couple weeks ago when I preached through verses one through seven. And I referred to the heavens in verse five as the eternal dwelling place of God. Well, now I understand a little bit better that that was probably just the physical creation of sky, heavens in that sense. They, they didn't have the term atmosphere in biblical days. And so we kind of understand it that way better now. Uh, God made these things on the second day of creation. 
The expanses is what it says in Genesis. So I saw the contextual clue of long ago in verse 5, and I thought that that meant before the creation of the world as the heavens, the eternal abode of God. Actually, I think it's probably just describing multiple aspects of the creation event, God creating the world and the heavens in that sense. So I I do feel like I should have caught it when I was looking at verse 7 in the context of when Peter uses that word again in the same way when he describes the coming judgment. And he says, the heavens and earth that are now, that now exist are stored up for fire. So it's, it's the same, same terminology that's being used and I missed it. Uh, I, I'm indebted to the patience of the Lord, to be sure, to the elders as well, but also to you all as we kind of learn through this together. I think that that's important and the reason why we studied and talked about it at such detail is, um, well, For me to preach, I need to know what this is referring to, but also as we study and understand Peter's use of heavens in verse 10. Okay, read it again with me. He says that the created heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So what Peter's getting at is just a more detailed explanation of what the coming day of the Lord will bring with it. So it's going to happen, and Peter gives us a little bit more explanation for it. And he mentions the heavens... But then he also mentions the heavenly bodies. I think it might only be in the ESV where it's translated that way. Most other English translations, it's translated elements. Okay, I don't know that that really helps us in understanding it any easier, but it is a difference. We'll talk about that in just a moment. He says that these things will pass away with a roar, and they'll be burned up and dissolved. So we're not totally sure what the term heavenly bodies or elements is referring to. But it could be referring to like the basic components of life, the basic building blocks of something. The Greek word that's used here carries the idea of of keeping something in a line, so like an order of things, proper order. Peter uses this word only twice in verse 10 and 12, and of its uses in the rest of the New Testament, which is only used seven times, of the other uses this these are the only ones where commentators or translators applied any kind of material substance meaning to this word elements or heavenly bodies okay so we often read it to mean that the heavens or the stars the moon the sky the atmosphere all those things along with the earth and everything done in it will be dissolved that's what verse 12 says the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn Okay, this is graphic language. It's important. So could this mean that Peter is saying that the basic principal things of heaven, the stars, the moon, the atmosphere, will burn in the coming judgment? Yeah, I think we could say that. Could this mean that the very building blocks of matter itself, atomic particles, subatomic particles, that all of these things will burn and dissolve in the coming, coming judgment? Yeah, I think we can say that. But I think there's another aspect here that's interesting that I think we need to look at as well. So I I mentioned that this word for elements or heavenly bodies is used seven times in the New Testament, two here, five other places. In those other places, it's always referring to the elementary principles, not of physical material, but of a particular teaching. Okay, so I've got these listed in your notes, Galatians 4, 3 and 9. Paul uses this term in reference to the foundational teachings of the world, so it's negative teaching, which he says leads to bondage. 
In Colossians 2, 8 and 20, Paul uses this word to reference the rudimentary teaching opposed to the teaching of Christ. It's opposition to proper teaching. In Hebrews 5, verse 12, the author there uses it in reference to the primary principles of the oracles of God. Okay, so could could Peter be saying that the elementary components of the physical heavens and the physical earth will burn in the coming judgment? Yes, and, and I think that's what he is talking about. Could Peter be saying that the foundational teachings and principles of this world will dissolve away in the coming judgment? Yeah, I think he's talking about that too. I think it's talking about it all. And what's going to bring it about? He says the day of the Lord. The return of Christ is going to bring all these things to pass. Our inherited nature from Adam and the foundational found, foundational fundamental teachings of this world, they tell us that this is all that there is. This life, this physical existence on this planet is it. And so that's why you should live your best life now. You only live once, so make it count, right? Uh, the Bible puts it this way, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The world in its sinful state hammers this into our heads constantly, doesn't it? Not maybe in those definite terms, but you, gotta, you need the newest car and the best carpet in your house and the best soft drink in your fridge and the best phone in your pocket and all of this world is all that there is it's telling you peter says it's not true it's not true he says it's not gonna last the physical things of this earth will not last this world is not our true home it actually does matter how you live because what you're being told will last brothers and sisters friends actually won't in this world, according to the world's fundamental teachings, they've got it backwards. And Jesus makes this really clear. He talks about laying up treasures in heaven versus earth, right? He knew, he understood the state of humankind. Peter does too here. The things of this earth will not last. Don't put your hope in them. Look at verse 10 again. He says that this earth, the heavens and earth, will be purified by the fire of judgment. He says it will be burned up and dissolved, or verse 12 says melt. Uh, the Greek word for this means to loosen, to untie, to release, to dissolve, to destroy, and sometimes to burn. So the elements will be loosened and broken up into their component parts, kind of like a building being torn down, brick by brick, to where in the end, it doesn't resemble a building at all. Or if you've used uh, an Alka-Seltzer tablet, you drop that thing in some water, liquid, and it just, it just bubbles and dissolves. It doesn't look like a tablet anymore at all. Kind of like, it's kind of like that. I think this is really interesting. Because if you think back to verse 5, the scoffers are saying, nothing's going to change because nothing has changed. And Peter's saying, everything is going to change. <laughs> Every, maybe even the subatomic particles that hold things together are going to be changed and done away with. And he says it's going to happen how? 
He describes it, he says, with a roar. At least in the ESV, that's what it says. The Greek word for this literally means a buzzing or whistling or whizzing noise. Comes in the arrow, right? You shoot an arrow, or even if you throw a spear really well, and it goes by you in the air. Uh, I, was, I was playing golf one time over at Tivoli Hills when I was a teenager. And I was not playing golf properly with my friends. We were in two opposing hills, and we were hitting golf balls at one another. And, and we came awfully close a few times. And I, rem- I distinctly remember the sound of a golf ball whizzing by my head. Okay? If you shot an arrow or you've had things fly quickly by your head, you, you know the sound. Now, when you're the one shooting the arrow or hitting the golf ball, you don't catch the same sound. It doesn't instill the same kind of feeling in you as the one it being the one that it whizzes by. This is, I think, kind of the idea of what Peter is getting at here. He's going to say, he says that it's so, it comes so quickly. The day of God comes so quickly. It's like a thief in the night. It's like the whizzing of an arrow by your head. You might hear the sound of it. But until it hits that mark of where it's going, you don't know what it was, hardly even. That's how this, the coming of Christ is going to be. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, John's referring to the final day of judgment. And there he says this. He says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. They fled away. Earth and sky fled away, perhaps with the speed and the sound of a whistling arrow that quickly. Peter says that the works that are done on the earth will be exposed or they will be burned up or they will be laid bare or they will be disclosed. I think it's helpful to note that Jesus uses the same word three times. In Matthew's gospel, and each time he uses it in the same context that what Peter's using it as. Second coming. The coming judgment. I read this week, I know we've we've talked a lot of technical details about these verses. um, But I read this week that even today, New Testament scholars and commentators view this portion of text in Peter's writings as some of the most challenging in all of scripture to understand, to interpret to get a sense of what he's talking about. And that's why we spent so much time on verse 10 and verse 12 and on these verses in general. And to me, it would seem in the context here then that Peter's saying all of the the, the works that are done on the earth, I think burned up is a good way to look at it. Now, will they be exposed? Sure, yes. Will they be laid bare? Yes. But I think burned up makes the same sense. We can, or the most sense, we could say those other things. God is going to lay bare. Any of humankind's efforts that are worthless in the end will be revealed as such. God's the judge and he's going to lay them to bear. I think Paul uses it this way in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 15 when he talks about people barely escaping judgment. As, but as through fire. So I don't think that should be the goal of any Christian, right? To just barely squeak by. 
But I think burned up is a good way to understand this. Now, before we move to verses 11, 12, and 13, let me just say one more thing. I think when Peter's describing here, even in terms of fire, it, it, it may not mean or point to the complete annihilation of everything we know in the world and physical substance. Uh, based on some of the phrasing and the words that Peter uses here, he could be describing not the ex- extinction of the present world, but more the cleansing of it, the making new of it. He's already taught, if you look back at First Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 7, and, and chapter 4, verse 12, he explains the refining fire that our faith goes through. Okay, so there's there's some precedent there that he's referring to that. Also, Romans 8 speaks of the whole earth groaning for redemption. Paul is not talking about extinction or the annihilation of the physical creation, but groaning for the redemption of it. So could God refine the heavens and the earth by use of judgmental fire? Yeah, absolutely. Could God totally obliterate the physical heavens and earth and make something new? Absolutely, he could. So which is it? Is he going to do away with it all 100% and make something new? Or is he just going to redeem it and cleanse it into something new? Which is it? I don't know. And I'm not sure that that's even Peter's point here. So what is Peter's point? Look at verses 11 and 12. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So we do know a few things for sure. The heavens, the earth, the fundamental teachings of the world that we live in, it's going to be done away with. Somehow, some way, it's going to be loosened, it's going to be dissolved, it's going to be done away with. And since that's the case, however it happens... Peter's big point here is that is that kind of question. What sort of people ought you be? If Christ is coming, and he is, there may be some discussion and some disagreement on how it's all going to play out, but we know it's going to happen, and since it is, what sort of people ought you be? What sort of people ought you be? It can get so easy to get caught up in these other details. Well, I don't think that word means this, or this should mean that. It could get so easy to get caught up in that that we miss his point entirely. What sort of people ought you be? And I think that's a rhetorical question because he kind of answers it. In light of Christ's imminent return, we ought to live lives of godliness. In light of his physical and imminent return, we ought to live lives marked by looking for and eagerly waiting his second coming. To bring glory to a patient, loving, and merciful God and to avoid the coming judgment of the ungodly, Christians should dedicate themselves to the things that last beyond judgment. However that judgment comes down, we should be about things that are going to last beyond that. And that's why Jesus says, lay up your treasures in heaven, not on earth. This stuff is going to go away. The ESV study Bible makes a helpful comment. It says the second coming should be motivation to live a holy life. And I think that's right. I think that's part of Peter's big point here. Now, guys, you say, well, what what does that look like? 
Peter's written chapter after chapter after chapter of what it looks like to live a holy life. Go back to 1 Peter. In fact, let me just give you a few things from his first letter. How do, how do we live a godly life? Here we go. Here we go. Be sober-minded. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Put away all malice. Put away all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, all slander. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. Keep your conduct honorable. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. Love one another earnestly. Show hospitality without grumbling. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Resist the devil firm in your faith. There's more, and that's just First Peter, the, the book of First Peter. You want more recent? Look at Second Peter chapter one, verses five through eleven. There's the qualities of the Christian there. It's not that I think most Christians are unaware of what Peter says is how we're supposed to live while we wait for the second coming. I think it's that most of us would just rather argue about the other things instead. Instead of that, instead of arguing about what we don't quite know for sure, I think the way forward is clear. I think Peter is paving that way for us. He says, look, it's going to happen when you least expect it. So because of that, spend your time living properly in eager expectation of Christ's coming. Live it right. Live lives of, of holiness, of, of godliness. He's told us how. He's told us how to do it in, the mar- in a marriage relationship, in a workplace relationship, in the context of the body of Christ, in our families. Peter's told us how to live holy lives. God's told us through his word. Christ is coming back, so be about those things. Let's finish with verse 13. Peter says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in in which righteousness dwells. So again, it may seem like there's a lot of time that's passed. But God always keeps his promises. And I forget who said it, but someone said God's never late. It's true. Because his timing is perfect. Now, we, we eagerly wait for the day of God. Because on that day, so whether he redeems what's here or whether he starts totally new, on that day, Peter says, righteousness dwells. It's, it's, no, it's no surprise to you for me to say that we live in a world where righteousness does not dwell. I mean, it does in his people because of the Spirit of God. But in the world itself, righteousness does not dwell. And so this is a wonderful promise of God. This should give us hope. This should give us joy. Are you being held captive to sin that so easily entangles you? Think about your own life. Are you being held captive by it? Are you wrapped up in it? Are you caught in it like a net? Are you maybe just weary of fighting the war within the members of your own body, as as Paul says it? Are you just tired of fighting inside? Are you tired of a world that tells you lies and sell and, and delivers bondage to you? Take heart. God says here, the day is coming when the world and every person who dwells on it will no longer be marred by sin, but by righteousness. Righteousness will dwell permanently. 
Think about this. If the weather center, there's some official weather, it sends you alerts, like if there's a tornado in your area, you know what I'm saying? If they sent you one and they said, a tornado, there's a 100% certainty that a tornado is going to hit your house at 5 p.m. tonight. None of you will be in your house at 5 p.m. tonight. Right? It, you will also not be able to remove everything that's precious to you out of that house by 5 p.m. tonight. So what's going to happen? Well, you're going to leave and your stuff is going to be destroyed. You're not going to go in and get it. You aren't going to stay for the tornado. Guys, we're not given a day and a time, but judgment is coming. And it'll be worse than a tornado going through your house. Christ, there's a hundred percent certainty that Christ is coming back in glory and in judgment. Peter's clear. It's going to happen. So the question then becomes, what is the proper response? If we know that Christ is coming, we don't know the time. We don't know exactly how it's all going to shake out, but we know it's going to happen. So what is the correct response? Well, if there's a tornado coming through your house at five and you knew it, everyone would think you're a fool to be in your house at 5 p.m. And they'd be right. So does that also apply to those who hear of the coming judgment of God and do not respond as the way the scripture tells us to? What would be the only response to flee the danger? John the Baptist says to flee the wrath that is to come. What's the proper response? Where do you go to flee the coming destruction? One place, only to Christ. Only to Jesus. Run to his arms. They're open. They're ready for you. He would rather you come to repentance. Turn to Jesus. He will take your burden of sin. He will replace it with peace, with love, with joy, and 10,000 other charms, as the old hymn says. The day of the Lord, Jesus' return is kind of like two sides of a coin. For the ungodly, for those who have not put their hope in Christ by faith, one side of that coin is judgment and fire. Everything laid bare, opened up. Justice will be dispensed on that day. And God will be glorified. The other side of that coin is for the sinner saved by grace. Not in your good works. Not even in your depth of faith but in those who have been saved by grace. The other side of that coin then is assurance and righteousness. Mercy has been dispensed to you on the cross and God is glorified in that as well. So whether it's justice or whether it's mercy, God is glorified. I think now's the perfect time for us to understand what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. You can read it with me. For while we were still weak, At the right time, you could say the perfect time, just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God's timing is right. God's timing is perfect. He knew when you would be born into this world, and he's got a plan. And our hope, and I would say that God's desire and hope is that you would reach repentance and by faith put your hope and trust in Christ alone. It's good that God's timing is perfect. And if he's calling to you, 
respond today because we don't have the promise of tomorrow. Look back. Every, every one of us can look back and see God's patience in our life, right? The older that we are in Christ, the more patience we recognize of God in our lives. Look back. Look at God's patience. Marvel at it. Be in awe of it. But let it cause you to repent of your sin. Turn from it. That's what God's patience is for. His kindness, His patience is designed to lead us to repentance. Understand that your refuge is not in the things of this world. The physical stuff that we spend so much time and energy and money on will dissolve away. Gone. Meaningless in the end. Only Jesus is your refuge. Only Christ is your salvation and your hope. Set that hope in what he has done. Not what you have done, not anything you can do, none of that. But, sh- but firmly on Christ, the anchor of our souls. That You can do that today. And my prayer and our prayer as a church is that we would do that today. Repent, recognize his patience in our lives, and let that drive us to repentance and faith. Let me pray, and then we'll move into the Lord's Supper. Lord, this is a good reminder, moving into what your supper is all about. It's to think deeply into what Christ has done, his death, his sacrifice on the cross, how how it accomplishes salvation for every person who believes. And so, Lord, if, if, if any have heard the message of salvation and the gospel today and recognize your patience in their lives, but also recognize that they have not run to Jesus as their only source of refuge, that they've been trying to strive in their own strength or to trust in some other thing, Lord, make that clear in hearts today. And for those who know you, Lord, I pray that as we move into this time of thinking of what you've done on our behalf, Lord, I I would pray that our love just deepens even more. Help us, uh, Lord, as we prepare for that day. We don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know all the details of it actually happening, but we know that it's going to. And so, Lord, I pray that that would motivate us to live in godliness. You can do that by your spirit and your people, and I pray that you would. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.